At last she reached a staircase that wound to the lower level. She followed the lazy spiral unsteadily, her hand holding to the railing for balance, leaving moist fingerprints on the polished wood that vanished a moment after her passing. She stood at the bottom of the stairway, uncertain which way to turn. To her right, a large room with a baby grand piano at its center a brick fireplace, a sofa and love seat of chocolate brown leather. To her left, a dining room with a huge crystal chandelier and a table large enough for a banquet. Sunlight from a long window cleaved the table, and in the bright gleam sat another vase full of daisies. Drawn by the smell of freshly brewed coffee, she moved through the dining room to the open door of the kitchen beyond. A carafe of orange juice sat on the counter near the sink, and next to it a glass poured and waiting. The smell of the coffee came from a French press coffee maker that sat on a large butcher block island. An empty cup and saucer had been placed on the block as if she were expected. A book lay there too, open to a page that began, I couldn't sleep all night. A foghorn was groaning incessantly in the sound, and I tossed half-sick between grotesque reality and savage, frightening dreams. The sliding glass door that overlooked the veranda was drawn back, letting in the morning air, and she walked across the cool black-and-white kitchen tiles to the doorway. From there, she could see the back of the estate with its pool set into the lawn like a piece of cut turquoise. Beyond was the blue-gray sweep of a great body of water that collided at the horizon with a cornflower sky. Beside the pool stood a man in a yellow windbreaker with a hood pulled up. Although she couldn't see his face, there was something familiar in his stance. She stepped outside, not bothering to slide the door closed behind her. It was a chilly morning. The cold marble of the veranda made her feet ache, but she paid no attention because something else had caught her eye, a crimson billow staining the blue water. She descended the steps and followed a limestone walk to the apron of the pool. The body lay on the bottom, except for the arms which floated free, lifted slightly as if in supplication. The swimming trunks were white, the skin tanned. She couldn't see the wounds, only the blood that leaked from somewhere underneath, gradually tinting the turquoise water a deep rose. The standing man turned his head slowly, as if it were difficult, painful even, for him to look away from death. The sun was at his back, his face shadowed, a gun in his hand. She recognized him, and the thought of what he'd just done pulled her heart out of her chest. Oh, Cork, no, she whispered. When he heard his name, his hard, dark eyes grew soft. Corcoran O'Connor stared at his wife, at her clean robe, her bare feet, her hair still mussed from a night she barely remembered. Joe, he said, I came to bring you home. Chapter 1 They hit the skunk just outside of town, and after that they drove with the windows down. It didn't help much. 
I know what you're thinking, Deputy Marsha Dross said. How could you know what I'm thinking, Cork replied. Because it's what I'd be thinking if I were you. And what's that? That if I'd let you drive, this wouldn't have happened. You're not me, Cork said, and that's not what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? Just wondering if there's enough money in the budget for a new Land Cruiser. He put his head out the window and let the air clear his nose. The road they were traveling had been traveled before by generations of Ojibwe and voyageurs. It connected the Blueberry River with Iron Lake and had been an important passage in the days of the fur trade. The French had called it Portage du Murti, Blueberry Portage. To the Ojibwe, whom the white men often called Chippewa, but who preferred the name Anishinaabe, which meant original people, it was known as Mon.